Brother Wally Jaworski and Brother Tracy Minnick being here recently. Well, you're listening to a very small mouse <laughs> today. It is a privilege to be here. Um, we have known your pastor for some years and your previous pastor for longer and his dad for a long time. I had the privilege of teaching in Bible college when Brother Harold Davies and Nigel were in Bible college together. Can you imagine the same class, same time? We're reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and I'd like to ask you to turn there with me. <clears throat> I like going and visiting in other churches, even when I don't speak there. And one of the things I really love is to see boys and girls in church. I get such a blessing out of churches still having Sunday schools. You know, there are many churches that don't have Sunday schools anymore. And it's just a blessing to go to a church that has lots of boys and girls. That's a real testimony for you folks before the Lord. I sat there in the seat before we started in Sunday school and thought, how long ago did I start going to Sunday school? My dad was a soldier in the Second World War and his brother, I believe, came to faith in Christ in a foxhole in Europe and <clears throat> said to the Lord, when I get out of here, if you'll help me to get out of the war, I'll do anything you want me to. And he did. And one of the things the Lord wanted him to do was to be a testimony to my dad and he witnessed to my dad, but my dad didn't respond until the preacher and his wife came around one day and led my mom to Christ. And when she trusted the Lord, she said to dad, we're going to church on Sunday. You coming? He said, nope. Well, he lasted one Sunday at home by himself. It was too lonely. And so the next Sunday, he, <laughs> he was in church and never looked back. And I thank the Lord. I still remember my first Sunday school teacher, Mrs. Lane, and what she taught us and the picture she showed us. Sunday school's great. I, I started Sunday school 75 years ago, and it's a delight. So we're going to read, but let's pray first. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the Word of God. Such a blessing to have a Bible of my own, as many as I want, and to be able to read it every day and believe it and to learn from it and grow, and especially to be converted to faith in Christ through what you say to us in your word. Now we're praying your blessing upon your words to our hearts today. We thank you that it's the Holy Spirit that inspired the word and indwells the believer <clears throat> and enlightens us as we read the scriptures. And we're praying for that. We pray, Lord, that you'll have a lot of things to say to us today that the preacher doesn't know to say and that you'll be speaking to us and dealing with us and be leading us and guiding us. <clears throat> we pray, Heavenly Father, that every one of us can be a blessing to someone. Help us to serve you with all our hearts, we pray now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. From the first verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I've fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers? by whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to every man, I've planted, Apollos watered, 
but God gave the increase. So, so then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that year God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereupon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. I call your attention to verse 9, the first phrase of verse 9, for we are laborers together with God. And so I want to speak to you on the topic this morning, my part in God's work. It's a subject that the apostle deals with here, and, and he has to deal with it, because the church in Corinth, one of the old commentators that died about 50, 60 years ago, said that the church in Corinth is the one church in the New Testament that was most under the influence of its culture. That says something to us there. And as a result of Greek culture and the city they lived in Corinth and Athens off to the east some distance and all of these terrible influences, this church had a, a lot of problems, didn't they? If you're reading through 1 Corinthians, the next time you're reading through, if you'll just watch every chapter, there's a problem in almost every chapter that the apostle has to deal with. And here is the problem in this chapter that he also addresses in chapter 1, that there was a divisiveness in the church over who was their favorite preacher. I like this one, and you like this one, that one, and I was saved under this one, and you were saved under that one. And there was this problem of favorite preachers, and so Paul deals with that in this chapter. But that's not what we want to look at this morning. We want to look at the fact that God involves people in his work. That's a simple thing, isn't it? The Lord equips and trains and calls and enables people to be part of what he is doing, and he's always done that. He's always worked that way that involves people in what he's doing. Please remember now, he's not dependent on us. He doesn't need us. He does the greater part of the work. All the glory should go to God. That's what Paul is saying here. But when God created the, un the universe, he made a man to have dominion over the living creatures that the Lord had put into the world. When God would save the human race for de uh, from destruction in a great flood, he called a man named Noah to build an ark and to populate the ark, to bring his family and to bring all the animals into the ark to save them from destruction. When God would found a race, would start a race of people that would provide the Savior for our salvation, he chose a man whose name was Abraham. When God would rescue his people from slavery, he chose a man whose name was Moses. When God would defend his people from cruel oppression, God sent a lad, David, but he was a man in germ form, you might say, to deliver the people from the Philistines. And when God would pay our sin debt, when God would provide salvation and forgive our transgressions, he made his son a man in human flesh. And when he would call God's attention to this Messiah he sent, he called a man named John. Now there's this principle that we see all through scripture. We're in danger. I don't know altogether why we're in danger. If you know, would you please talk to me afterwards? 
But we're in danger of thinking, well, God's work can be done by God and he doesn't need me. And uh, I can sort of be, uh, you know, we used to have couch potatoes. You ever heard of couch potatoes? We've got recliner rhubarbs these days too, you know, and we could just lean back and take it easy and coast on in. I got saved and I'll be there. I've got a ticket to heaven. That'll do me. But the Lord teaches us in his word that he calls people, that he's got a job for every one of his children. Have you thought about that? The Lord has a task. He has something for all of us to do. And that's an important question for us to think about. Do I understand? I'm going to sit in your seat with you this morning and ask the question. Do I understand that God has a work for me to do? God has a plan for me. It's something he wants me to do. Susan and I have been in the ministry 56 years uh, this year. We were married on a Friday night, and by the next Wednesday, she was pastor's wife. Boy, I'll tell you what, that's a hurry, isn't it? She was 18, and I was 22. You've never seen that done wrong before, have you? Well, we were greener than grass. But when we were pastoring in Missouri, uh, in the first church, Grace Baptist Church, Someone told me that there was a barber who was a Christian that would give preachers free haircuts. And, you know, preachers are always overpaid. And so I just had lots of money, but I didn't. And so I went to this old barber and I said to him, can I get a haircut off you? And he said, sure, sit down here. Now, this old fellow didn't have any papers. He didn't have any certificates. He hadn't been folded, spindled or mutilated. And so he just said, sit down here and I'll cut your hair. And then he said to me, what do you do for a job? I said, I'm a preacher. He said, tell me about it. And when I told him about how the Lord had saved me and called me to preach, he said, you know, I'm not going to charge you for a haircut. He said, I'm a Christian too. He said, I'd like to tell you when I got saved and where I got saved. And he did. And as we talked, he had lots of good things to tell me. One of the things he said to me was, when I first got saved, I wanted to be the little white horse in front of the team in the parade with my mane and plaits with ribbons and I wanted my hooves all polished and I wanted to be the, the one focus of attention. Everybody look at me. But he said the Lord soon knocked that out of me and taught me that he really wanted me to be grease on the axle. Just doing the job all out of sight, unseen, just helping things to roll along smoothly. Did you know that the Lord does that with us oftentimes? The most useful People in the service of God are often unrecognized in this lifetime. But oh, what a glory it's going to be. When we kneel before the judgment seat of Christ and rewards are given out, isn't it going to be glorious to find, to see, and to hear the crowns that are given to those who are content to be grease on the axle? Well, I want to talk to you about that this morning. Do I see myself to be a laborer together with God as in verse 9? For we are laborers together with God. We are co-workers with God. You know, it's good for us to think about the life of a church. To think seriously about the life of the church. Is a church supposed to be an assembly of co-workers co-laborers with God, or is a church supposed to be a fan club that follows religiously some religious celebrity that stands up front? Think about it. Because in our day, 
we have seen in our lifetime churches shift, many good churches shift away from being a team, a family of co-workers for God who loved Christ and served the Lord Jesus to being a fan club for a religious celebrity. Can't you think of some names? And so many of them have crashed and burned recently. The scripture teaches us that God intended for a church to be a body of participants, not spectators. We see programs on television or on the internet where you see a congregation sometimes numbering many thousands. And there's half a dozen people that are religious leaders or experts on the platform entertaining this congregation of thousands. But virtually nobody knows the words to the hymns unless they're projected on a screen. And you'll often see hundreds of people in a congregation like that standing mute, standing silent, not participating. Because we've got a generation of viewers instead of doers. We're to be hearers and doers, not hearers and viewers. The music of a church. Let me talk to you about the music. It's good to hear you singing hymns. Good to see great choruses in Sunday school. I'm envious. You've got some choruses we don't have. We need your choruses. We need the ones we don't have. Great choruses in Sunday school. You know your boys and girls are going to remember those choruses when they're 30 and 40 and 50 years old. And they're going to sing those choruses to their own children and grandchildren. It's a blessing to have music that's that good. Well, does the congregation here at Clarence Valley Baptist Church, does this congregation, does this congregation participate in the hymn singing and the chorus singing, or do they, are they just spectators? I believe you, you folks participate. Do we all sing or do we all just listen? God never intended for His people to be hearers and viewers, he intended for us to be hearers and doers. Is the music at your church, and I know the answer, it's yes. Is the music at your church of such a nature that you want to sing it when you go home? I have a theory. Uh, I have a lot of theories. You do too. I have a theory that if you can't whistle it, it's not any good. All right. Can you whistle the songs you sing at church? Now, I, I'm... I, I'm a pretty strong fan of whistling. And our folks at our church look around to see who is this that's whistling at church after the service is over. We had a dear old preacher friend in America whose name was John Bunyan Wilder. Don't get me started telling you about Brother Wilder. There are a thousand stories and all of them good. Brother Wilder said he could never carry a tune with his voice, but he could whistle. And so we would be singing with all our might in the church and you'd hear Brother Wilder sitting in the back whistling but never bothered anybody. I really think that the tunes that we use in church need to be so good that people go home singing them and whistling them and humming them and wanting to play them on their devices at home. How many of you have ever heard of a fellow named Farrell Williams? Did you ever hear of a guy named Farrell Williams? That's good. I'm proud of you. He's one of the pop singers in our time. And he sang a song. I guess you could call it singing. I'm not quite sure. But he sang a song about being happy. And it didn't really have a tune and it really didn't have a message, but it had a beat. And that was what sold the song. 
And one day I stumbled across a recording, a video of him singing that song without any background music. And it was sort of 7-Eleven music, you know, the seven words 11 times, you know, that you hear that sort of stuff in churches this way these days. They used to call it CCM, Contemporary Christian Music. I think they ought to call it Commercial Christian Music because it's really written to make money. But if you could listen to that video recording of him singing with no background, you'd say, you know what, this song doesn't have a melody and it doesn't have a message. And the only thing that carries it and the only thing that sells it is the beat. There's something wrong with music like that. It's important, dear friends, for us to have high quality, godly music like you have here. I was working in a, in a clothing factory one time when we were first married. And uh, it was my job to help the fellow that drove the truck from the other branch of the factory to our branch and to help him unload his truck. And one day when I walked out the front of the factory to help him unload his truck, I found him whistling, How Great Thou Art. And I said to him, that is a great song. Where did you learn that song? He said, I just got saved last week. I said, this is what they sing at my church. I said, sing it away, brother. That is really excellent. Shouldn't it be that way? That we carry the Lord's music out into the community and people come to recognize that we have a song to sing because we have a wonderful Savior. When I think about the place of man in God's work, I told Pastor I would share this with him and I will give these notes to him and, uh, and he can do with them what he thinks, but what he thinks best. But in 1980, in Sydney, there was a Congress of Fundamentalism there. And a brother from the north, and I came down from, uh, from North Queensland, and we went to the Congress, and there were a lot of good things there, a lot of good preaching, good solid preaching. And one of the preachers that was there that year was named Jim Singleton. He's gone to glory now. But Jim Singleton preached well there at the, the conference. And then we ran into him again. Well, we were overseas one time. We were in uh, the northwestern states, went to a Bible conference there. And Jim Singleton preached there and he gave out some notes to the preachers. I'm going to try to tidy up my copy of the notes because I wrote all over them. Tidy it up, type it out again and give it away to preachers. But here's what he said. I want you to think with me about this. Jim Singleton preached a sermon called The Release of the Laity or the mobilization of the laity. Now, we don't like that term, layman or laity. We sort of want to stay away from Nicolaitanism, and we think it has to do with that. We recognize that before the Lord, every believer in Christ is equal. We believe in the priesthood of the believer, and we recognize the equality. And we also recognize that God calls some men to be the pastors of churches and missionaries and evangelists. We understand that. But Jim Singleton said this, he asked a question, are you an Old Testament temple or are you a New Testament church? Never thought about this before he mentioned this to us. He said in the Old Testament, when you look at the worship of God on the part of, the, uh, on the part of Israel, he said you found 
professionals and buildings. You found priests and Levites and prophets, and there weren't a whole lot, a large number of them. And there was a temple. You found that in the Old Testament. But if you were a New Testament church, you find that ministry, ministry to Christ, involves all believers. Every saved person. So if you're here this morning and you know the Lord Jesus, he's got some work for you to do. You don't have to worry about not being a Levite, not being a priest or a prophet. The Lord's got a job for you, just the way he does for me. In the New Testament, ministry involves all believers and is not localized in one place. I read the other day that from the United States, someone estimated that there are 40,000 missionaries that have been sent out around the world. So we would suppose maybe there's 40 or 50 or 100,000 places where they're ministering the word and their converts are ministering the word. And if we multiply that times how many who have come to know the Lord and they're serving God all over the world, could there be half a million Bible-preaching, Christ-worshipping, obedient assemblies of believers around the world? Could there be a million assemblies of believers around the world? And how many people in those assemblies who know Christ actively are serving the Lord? There are a lot of people around the world, even in these dark, decadent days, who are busy serving the Lord. We just had our youth camp last week. Our youth camp had about, I'm going to guess, 85 kids there. We thank the Lord for that. They came from, I think, five churches up no further up in Queensland. Of those, uh, along with those 85 kids, there were 40 to 45 workers, and most of those workers came from our church. And among those workers, there were about a dozen of them who were our grandchildren. And we rejoice and rejoice and rejoice and rejoice because there were those volunteers who took off work from their jobs, gave, made sacrifices, worked early and late, worked hard, did a thousand jobs. That's the, that's the pattern we find in Scripture. In Scripture, all believers everywhere Serving the Lord. The trend in today's churches is back toward having a few professionals on the platform while the huge crowds come to be entertained and go home unmoved and unchanged. There's such a difference there. But the Lord's pattern, the Lord's plan is for every believer to say, what job do you want me to do, Lord? I'm willing it makes no difference whether anyone ever knows I do it. You dear folks here this morning, I don't know how many of you would say that you have a job here, but there's a good number. It's not just teaching. It's not just leading. There was some cooking done. That's a job. There was some preparing done. There was some cleaning done. There'll be some cleaning after. There's lots of jobs that we do. Jim Singleton said that churches that are filled with spectators instead of co-workers 
they find that, number one, their pastors burn out. I've been watching that happening. Second, they find that the people in the churches suffer from lack of spiritual maturity. And third, they, the members fail to have a personal outreach to the lost because they're depending on the professionals to do that. He said that studies regarding people's involvement, people actively serving, people being co-workers with God, he said studies discovered that when a church has 60% of its people, and I'm sure that's a rough estimate, involved in serving, the church grows. He said when 40% are involved, the church plateaus. And when only 20% are actively involved, the church shrinks and usually dies. He said that he decided when he found this out, and I don't know who he learned from, he decided that what he would do was take a survey in the church. And so he went around to all the members in the church and just gave them a piece of paper and said, if you have a job, would you write it on here? And then give it back to me. And so everyone in the church that had a job, any kind of job in the church, they saw themselves to have responsibilities that they were fulfilling in the church, large or small, wrote it down. He said, so I gathered up all the slips of paper and figured out the results. And he said, we had 94% of the members in the church actively serving. And the church was growing exponentially. Growing spiritually, growing numerically, growing in outreach, growing in souls being saved. It makes so much sense, doesn't it? That's God's pattern. So here's another question. I asked you the question, do I have a job? Am I a co-worker with God? A co-worker, a fellow laborer with the Lord? Well, when God deals with us about this, this is the, do you see this pattern in the New Testament? When the Lord here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, come back to our passage of Scripture here, the Apostle talks here to us about two, two kinds of service for God that involve multiple people. You see it here in verse 6. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. We are fellow laborers with the Lord. I planted. Paul went there in Acts chapter 18 to Corinth and sowed the seed. And Apollos came along and watered. And the Lord gave the increase. He said, do you see that pattern there? But he goes on further and he tells us that the Lord also does a work of building. In verse 10, according to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder. I love that phrase. It's translated from the word architectos, as an architect. Paul says, according to the grace of God, which is given to me as an architect, I laid the foundation. I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereupon, thereon, but let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. And so he says our work for the Lord is like planting a field more than one is involved. Our work for the Lord is like building a building, but there's more than one involved. In fact, hold your place there and turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 4. In the fourth chapter of John, 
the Lord Jesus' disciples go into town to get some food. When they come back, <coughs> they find the Lord <coughs> sitting on the edge of the well there at Samaria and witnessing, speaking of himself to the woman, the adulterous woman. And, and then the Lord, she leaves her water pot, someone said, and takes the well home with her. I like that. She came to faith in Christ and left her water pot and took the well home. Well, the Lord Jesus starts talking to his disciples and he says to them in verse 35, Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. I want to use my imagination carefully here, but a sanctified imagination makes me think that the Lord Jesus pointed toward Sychar and out of the gate came men who because of the witness of the woman, because she said, come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Is not this the Messiah? And so these men issuing forth, the Lord Jesus said, Look upon the fields, lift up your eyes and look on the fields for their white already to harvest. In verse 36, and he that, reapeth, he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. So Paul is saying, you see how we work together? Doing the work of the Lord, I sent you to reap that whereupon or whereon you bestowed no labor. Other men labored and ye are entered into their labors. So we see here that cooperation, being involved in the Lord's work. This is what the Lord Jesus said to his disciples when he called his disciples. How many times did Jesus call the disciples? Have you ever noticed? It's more than once. I think it's almost the first time. We can say that the first time it be in John chapter 1, where he calls several of the disciples that were there where John was baptizing. But then you come back to Galilee and he finds some men who are washing their nets and mending their nets. And you read that in Mark chapter 1. Now as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. Did you ever notice that the Lord Jesus never said to his disciples, You fellows stand and watch, and I'll whistle up the fish. Did you ever notice that? He always said, Let down your nets for a draw. I'm sure that the disciples were Baptists. you know how I know? Because when he said, let down your nets, Simon Peter said, Lord, we fished all night. We didn't catch anything. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. He said, give me all you got. And they said, well, we'll give you a little bit. That proves they were Baptists. Doesn't that prove they were Baptists? Let down the nets. Peter said, I'll let down the net. No S on the end. And with one net that split, 
They caught enough fish to sink two boats, almost. All right, forgive me. I need to call your attention to one more text. I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. In John, chapter 11, we see such a beautiful illustration of winning the lost. I'm sure you find this to be true here in Clarence Valley. I'm sure you find it true that often there will be one of you that has a contact with some lost person that you share the gospel with, but the Lord uses somebody else to lead him to Christ. Isn't it a blessing when it's that way? In a period of nine months, no, I take it back, I believe it's a period of 16 months, we saw nine adults come to faith in Christ when we were in Cairns, and it was such a blessing that none of us could tell who won them to the Savior. There were so many people involved in witnessing to these people that none of us could say, I led him to Christ. Isn't that working together? Isn't that being co-laborers with the Lord? Well, in John chapter 11, we have the resurrection of Lazarus. And we love this account, don't we? It's one of our favorite chapters in the Bible. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that the resurrection of any person is such an illustration of our salvation. I'm going to read to you from Ephesians 2. If you want to turn there, you can, but hold your place in John chapter 11. In verse 1, Paul writes to the Christians there in Ephesus and says, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Look at yourself this way. You were lost, you were dead, and the Lord made you alive. That's resurrection. And then he says in verse 4, But God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, verse 5 in Ephesians 2, Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace you are saved. And verse 6, And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I want to tell you that I was a lost man moldering in the grave, lost and perishing There was no hope for me. I was dead as a rock. And the Lord raised me, raised me in salvation, so now I'm alive. But the picture of that's in chapter 11 in John. So if you look there, I'll show you this, because the Lord Jesus says three things to his disciples in John chapter 11 that show us how he involves his people in what he's doing. And the first thing he says to them that shows us this is in verse 34, John 11 and verse 34. The scripture says here where Jesus said, Where have you laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. And then we go down a little bit further here. And the Lord Jesus said in verse 39, Take ye away the stone. And then when he has raised Lazarus from the dead, we come down to verse 44. And the last phrase is loose him and let him go. So I want to call your attention to these three things. First of all, the Lord Jesus said, Take me to the dead men. Did you know that's what our missionaries are doing is taking the Lord Jesus to dead people? 
around the world. If pastor says to any of the men here in the church, or Mrs. Davies says to any of you ladies in the church, come go with me, there's a visit we need to make. They may well be taking you to a dead man or dead woman, someone who's dead in trespasses and sins, in hope that the Lord will raise them up. But the Lord used his disciples to show him where Lazarus was. So here's a question. Do you think the Lord Jesus knew where Lazarus was? Probably you'd say, yep, yep. I expect the Lord Jesus knew exactly where they laid Lazarus. He probably knew which tomb. He knew where he was. Well, then why did he ask? Because he loves to involve us in what he's doing. He doesn't need us. He can do the work without us. But there's some reason why the Lord involves his people in what he's doing. So when the Lord prompts your heart to, to go to see someone who's lost and to witness Christ to them. When we first started out in the ministry, Susan's sister and our brother-in-law were living close by and Wayne and I used to go on visitation at night. One night we're visiting down in a valley in the Ozark Mountains and I said to him, we've got time for one more visit. It's getting late. We better not go late, too late. So we drove up out of the valley onto a crest, onto a ridge, and there was a house on the left with lights. And so we stopped and knocked on the door. And a fellow came to the door with alcohol on his breath. We introduced ourselves to him. He said, I know who you are. I bumped into a couple of men from the church down at the valley, down at the creek not long ago, and they invited me along to church. And so we started talking to him about the Lord. And Joe, Joe Crank said, I'm saved, but I'm really backslidden. He said, I woke up sick in the night the other night, and I felt like the Lord was telling me, if you don't get right, I'll kill you. Oh, that's pretty strong, isn't it? He said, we'll be there in church on Sunday. And they were. He and his wife, Virginia, and their daughter, Julie. And they started coming along regular. Joe got right with the Lord and started really telling people about the Lord. Uh, the daughter, Julie, came to the Lord. Virginia, it took her the longest period of time until she trusted the Lord. But you know what we were doing? We were taking the Lord Jesus to dead people. Joe was saved, but his wife and daughter weren't. You know, when they came to the Lord, they started taking the Lord Jesus to see lost people, dead people. They had lots of family, lived about an hour away. And often on a weekend, on Saturday, they would go over the car and they would load up their car with all the family members they could get to bring them back, stay the night with us, go to church with us on Sunday morning. And I think before we left the area there, they told us that there had been 28 family members raised from the dead who were converted to Christ because they kept taking the Lord Jesus to Lazarus' grave. Well, there's a second thing the Lord says. He says to the disciples in verse 39, He says, Take ye away the stone. Now Martha objected. She said, Lord, this is not going to be pleasant. He's been in the grave four days. By now he stinketh. The process of deterioration and decay has begun and it's not going to be pleasant. If you have them roll the stone away, well, it's just not going to be nice. And again, we say, you know, the Lord Jesus could have commanded that stone to go and be planted in the sea. And it would depart it in an instant, but he didn't. He involved his disciples. Now, why did he want them? 
to move the stone. Well, there are two reasons we think of very easily. And one is that the stone was a hindrance to the entering, the entrance of God's word into the tomb. And the stone was a hindrance to Lazarus coming out. And I'm going to suggest to you, dear friends, this morning that there are tombstones on the graves of lost people that we have to move before they get saved. And we do that with our testimony. We do that by living for Christ in such a way that over a period of time, it might take a week, it might take a month, it might take a year, it might take 10 years, it might take 35 years. We had a phone call from a chap. We're driving home one day from the coast and there's a fellow rang up and he said, I wanted to tell you that I've gotten saved. And we figured out that it had been 35 years since we started speaking to him about the Lord. How long does it take when you move the stone away before Lazarus comes out of the grave? Oh, friends, it's so vital for us to remove the hindrances to people hearing the word. How long does it take before the word gets in to their ears and they hear and the Lord works by His Spirit with His word on their heart and they're convicted and converted? How long does it take? I think the saddest thing that we ever see, what a tragedy. When the lip and life of a professing Christian add pebbles and boulders to the stone which lays on the tomb. You and I have seen it. Well, it be some careless Christian who's living not for Christ, but for the world or for his flesh. And what he's doing is adding stones and adding stones and adding stones to hinder people hearing the gospel and being saved. It's our job to be taking the stones away. A young man knocked at the pastor's door at the church in the study one noon. pastor went to the door and opened the door, and here's a young man standing there with the old bib, bib, bib apron on. You remember the old aprons with bibs on them? Anybody ever see those anymore? And this young man said, are you the pastor? He said, yes, I am. He said, can I talk to you? He said, sure, come in. This young man said, pastor, does Mr. Brown come to church here? He said, well, we've got several men in the church with that surname. Which one are you thinking of? He said, I'm, I'm thinking of the one that owns the grocery store where I work. He said, yes, he's one of our deacons. He's one of our finest men. Young man said, well, then, preacher, I want to get saved. The pastor said to him, well, I'd love to tell you, I'd love to show you how to be saved. But what does it have to do with Mr. Brown? He said, I work for him. And he's the finest Christian I've ever met. And I want to get my salvation in the same place he got his. Now, isn't that what it ought to be? You know, you're a pastor. What? Think of nothing better than to get out of bed at 3 o'clock in the morning and lead some person to Christ whose life you have touched by your testimony. You've been rolling the stones away. And someone comes looking for the answer. Now the Lord Jesus with his powerful word, the word of God cries aloud, Lazarus, come forth. 
What a marvelous thing it is. And there's a whole sermon here we can't stay. But a marvelous thing it is for God's Word to have such power that it quickens the dead and it raises the dead and lost people get saved. But Jesus had one more thing to say to the disciples and that was loose him and let him go. Because you know in Bible times, they would take the clothing off a person that he usually wore and they would wrap him in grave clothes. All the way around, including spices for embalming oftentimes. And then they'd lay them in the grave. I don't know how it was that Lazarus came out of the grave. I don't suppose he floated out. I expect he shuffled out. His feet are bound around his legs, and yet he shuffled out of the tomb. And when the Lord Jesus saw him come out, the napkin on his face may have fallen aside. And people could see his eyes and see the brightness and the life in his face. But the Lord said to his disciples, Loose him and let him go. Loose him. Get rid of the grave clothes. Did you know that when you were converted, when I was converted, when anyone is converted, that we come out of the grave when we're saved with baggage, with things that belong to the old life before, before we were saved, that need to go. Language, music, habits, friendships, hobbies, no telling what, no, no telling what sort of practices that need to go. And we're going to have to have help with that. I remember when I was converted, though I'd been in church all my life, I had the dirtiest mouth you ever came across. That's not too uncommon among religious people. When I was converted, I knew there were some words that needed to go and I shouldn't use those words anymore. And the Lord took them away. But there were other words that were diminutive oaths. that were little swear words. Little polished up ones that Christians tolerated. And bless her dear heart. My dear wife's mother said to me one day when I used one of those diminutive oaths. She said to me, do you know what that word means? And I said, no, I really don't. She said, there's a great big thick dictionary in the lounge room there. Would you like to look it up? I said, I will. And I went and looked it up. And I said, oh no, I have been saying little words I thought were harmless, but they're actually swear words or they're diminutive oaths that actually take the name of the Lord in vain. And I was so convicted, I started searching the dictionary, looking for whatever else needed to be gotten rid of, like grave clothes I wore out of the tomb. There's a principle here. Because when the disciples loosed him, when they began to unwind the grave clothes, unbind Lazarus, you know, they, they had to replace what they took off. There's a principle of replacement in Scripture. It's part of sanctification. I know that the disciples, as they gathered around Lazarus in loving fellowship, at this one who's now alive, who was dead before, and he's now alive, that as they took the grave clothes off, I'm sure they said to him, oh, we can't leave you like this. And one of the disciples would have said, here, here's a shirt. You can have mine. 
He had one in his backpack. Another one said, here's a pair of strides. Here's some socks. Here's what you need. And they replaced. You know, there's a principle of replacement in Scripture. And the Lord says, put off this and put off that and put off that and put on this. There is such a principle here. You know, if we're going to do the Lord's work, if we're going to be fellow laborers with God, we've got to remember that the Lord is going to say to these new believers, put off all these, anger, wrath. This is addressed to believers. Malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with, uh, after the image of him that created him. Now that's wrong verse. Put off the old man with his deeds. And have put on the new man, Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. Put on therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. And above all these things, put on charity. So there's a principle here. Now, I want to use this. I want to see if I can get this across to you. That this is such a picture of God involving us in what he's doing. The Lord Jesus could have done all of those. I figure he knew where Lazarus was. He could have moved the stone. He could have loosed him and let him go. But he involved his people in doing those things. That's such a challenge to us here. How do we apply these things? I like Thomas. We think about Thomas as being doubting Thomas. But in this chapter, in chapter 11, when Jesus says Lazarus is dead, Thomas says, let us also go that we may die with him. And that response on Thomas's part teaches us something about the importance of saying, whatever it is the Lord's doing, I want to be involved. The Lord's got a job for us, so let's go, fellas. No matter if it, it threatens our lives, if it endangers us, we still need to go. Whatever it is you're doing, Lord, we want to be a part of it. And that's the challenge for us. The Lord is calling Lazaruses out of the grave every day, all over the world, and he wants us to be part of it. Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus asked the Lord two questions. Who art thou, Lord? When Jesus said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest, it's hard for thee to kick against the bricks. Then Saul said, what wilt thou have me to do? That's a question you should ask the Lord. Lord, what do you want me to do? Anything you want me to do, I'll do. There's room for service for the Lord. There's room enough for all of us. Annie Johnson Flint wrote lots of good poems, and she wrote one that's in our hymnal. But one of her poems had a verse, the middle verse of her poem, that said, we are the only Bible the careless world will read. We are the sinner's gospel. We're the scoffer's creed. We're the Lord's last message, written in deed and word. What if the print be crooked? What if, maybe I'm gotten it wrong there, what if the print be blurred? It's so important for us to have a good testimony and and give up our lives to the Lord to be servants with the Lord.
I hope all of you here this morning at Clarence Valley are already actively serving the Lord. You've already got a job. You don't have to wait till you're 40 years old to do that. But if you haven't, it'd be a glorious thing if you go to pastor and say, Pastor, can you find a job for me? I would like to be active. I'd like to be doing and not just viewing. I want to be active in being a co-laborer with Christ. I want to do what he wants me to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we look at Scripture and we see how you used people, such imperfect people, Lord, our sanctification is not complete. But you don't wait until you've got it all done before you start using us. We think about the disciples. We think about Bible characters in the Old Testament. We think about the apostles. <coughs> and how you often struck a mighty lick with a crooked stick. You can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. And we're praying, Heavenly Father, that we could have some usefulness. You want to use us. And we want to be used. Lord, help us lay our lives on the altar for you. And be yielding ourselves up to you, Lord. Your ways are so good. We pray that we can bear fruit, every one of us, whether we're young or we're old. And help us, Heavenly Father, to be useful to you, to your glory, for others' good. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Pastor, will you come?